This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. For years, I was so fed up with shampoo, I just stopped washing my hair. I quit completely. I was so sick of poofy, frizzy, limp hair, distorting my natural oils. Until a few months ago, I found modern mammals and it changed everything. And by the way, right now you can visit modernmammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. So check that out. So look, I heard about this through the podcast and before I agreed to advertise, they sent it to me and I was reluctant. But let me tell you, I should not have been. This stuff is absolutely magical. My hair felt better, smelled way better, and most importantly, looked better. And I know it will do the same for you as well. It doesn't have those hair-ruining chemicals like other products, and it doesn't leave any leftover residues. It works. Don't believe me? Go read their awesome reviews online as well. Go to ModernMammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. Again, that's ModernMammals.com for 10% off with promo code LSS. Don't forget to use our promo code LSS so they know we sent you. Are you tired of getting slammed by hidden ticket fees? On SeatGeek, the price you see is the price you pay every time. No hidden fees, no surcharges at checkout, ever. Download the SeatGeek app today to start saving. SeatGeek is your ticket to amazing sports ticket deals. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lead Singer Syndrome. I am your host, Shane Told. It's so good to have you. Does this sound really good? Because I'm in an actual recording studio recording this podcast today. Uh, Silverstein, we're doing some stuff. I don't want to get into the details. Well, I can't get into the details, but we're in a legit, legit studio today. So I was able to get a room here and uh, actually record the podcast properly uh, in a real studio. Not just like in my car like a few weeks ago, or in my apartment with the trains going by. So this is very, very nice. I'm in a very nice isolation booth right now recording this. I've also got to say, this episode today is by far my favorite episode I've done so far. Now, this is the 33rd episode of Lead Singer Syndrome, and we have never had a guest be so honest about his past and so candid about the music industry, what he's gone through, and what he's doing now. And it's so unique what he's done. Um, I don't even want to spoil anything. I, you know, I don't even want to say, like, this is what's coming up because you just have to sit back, put in your headphones, get in your car, whatever you're doing, and just listen to what Will Francis has to say. Um, Will Francis, you might know him from Aiden, which is his, his band he was in on Victory Records, which is how I know him. You might know him from his current solo project, William Control. He is a character, man, and I am very, very proud to call him a friend. He is a good dude, despite he can be a little rough around the edges, but that's honesty, and that's true, and that's real. So we're going to get into that in a second. First, I got to say thank you so much to everybody that listens to this show week after week. The support 
it's just amazing now. I mean, I'm seeing people hit me up on the email, leadsingersyndrome at gmail.com. Feel free to email me. I'm not very good at getting back to you, but I do read them all. Uh, I'm on Snapchat, which is a newer thing for me, but I'm pretty good at getting back to people on that for some reason. My username is real Shane Told. I'm also on Instagram at Lead Singer Syndrome. I'm on Twitter at Lead Singer Sin, S-Y-N. So get in touch, please. Also, if you're not too happy, please hit up the hate line, 657-666-HATE. I know William Control would definitely love that phone number. So please, give me a call, leave a message. We're going to roll out some hate line clips eventually, I promise. And lastly, if you really like the show, please just tell a friend. If you have a friend that likes music, is interested in the music industry, is interested in singing, I mean, even just wants to sit back and listen to a couple idiots talk, like, if you have any friends, parents, brothers, sisters, whatever, that might be interested in this, please help spread the word. The show is growing. The episode last week we had with Dance Gavin Dance was one of our biggest episodes ever, which is amazing because people are finally catching on to what this show is, and I really think the word of mouth is the way to make this thing spread. Also, if you want to contribute financially, uh, one really easy way you can do it is if you buy anything online on Amazon, go to leadsingersyndrome.com slash Amazon. It will redirect you right to the Amazon homepage. You log in as normal. And whatever you buy on Amazon, we get 4%. And that stuff really adds up. And they sell everything. So please, if you buy anything online, check out that affiliate link. It would really, really help us out. Anyways, I don't want to keep these intros too long. This is a very long episode and a very, very, very... (laughs) Wow. This episode is wow. So here we go. Here's my conversation with William Francis of Aiden and William Control. been a while it has been a while <laughs> yeah man we tried to set this up like what six months ago yeah i think and then yeah and somehow it works it's funny when it works out like like i know you so well but it works out through your publicist somehow it's funny how that <laughs> shit works out stupid <laughs> it's fine it's fine whatever it doesn't matter dude so yeah. uh what's new with you man you're in uh, seattle right now yep i'm at home in the uh the old studio Making now, a new record. You're making a new record right now. Yeah. And this is a William Control record. It is indeed. Beautiful. And this is going to be what, number five? Yeah. Does that blow your mind? It does, actually. <laughs> like the fact that, you know, I mean, you did all those records with Aiden and, you know, you kind of jumped out to do this side project and now it's become, you know, your main thing, your livelihood, and now you're up to five LPs. That's... Wow. I know, dude, it's so crazy the way time, time is so different now in my life than when it was, you know, even 10 years ago. What do you mean exactly by that when you talk about time? I mean, younger, when I was younger, I I felt, I felt as if time moved so much slower. You know, the, the, the time between, you know, Nightmare Anatomy and Rain in Hell was seemed like an eternity when in actuality it was a year. That's true, man. And I feel, 
now I feel like a year ago felt feels like yesterday. Yeah. So fucking weird. It is weird. And I wonder if that's just because when you're younger in life, you have less life experience. So every, you know, every second minute, hour, you know, weekday, year, um, it's like more percentage of your life. Does that make sense? Yeah. To where it's I- just like now what are you 34 like you've had so much uh life experience and, and you and you believe me we're going to talk about how much life experience you've had uh you know on on this earth like now it's like yeah what's another year isn't that a weird thing though yeah it's fucking strange man very strange well hey man it's so good to have you on the lead singer syndrome podcast and um when i started this show you were one of the first people i wanted to get on because i think you have such an interesting story of how you've how you came into all this, you know, and, and where you are now basically with your own little empire, if that's an appropriate thing to say, um, and starting out just as basically like a punk kid on the street. Yeah. Is that accurate? That's 100% accurate. And I know you've had, I, know, I mean, you talked to me very candidly, you know, back in the day when, when we first met, what was it, in 2003, you know, you were very candid about how, hey man, I was... I was addicted to drugs and I fucked up and, you know, and I got, I managed to pull myself out of it. And those stories you told me were heavy. (laughs) And, but at the same time, they're uplifting. And, um, I don't know if you're, if you're comfortable like sharing some of that stuff or, or, or talking about like kind of the early days of your life when you got into, I don't want to say punk rock or, or music or anything. I just kind of want to, I, I feel like you just kind of jumped in, you know, head first into just that lifestyle, um, which involved like music and drugs and everything else. And uh, can we start there? Because that's, stuff is crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, so it, I, it's not, it, it's it's really not that unique of a story. I mean, I... I'm an, I was an American teenager living in an American suburb doing what American teenagers in American suburbs do when they're bored and have an affliction towards getting loaded is, you know, I got f- fucking loaded. I met, I met the kids at, at school who I, f- I felt a connection with, with, with music, you know? Yep. And, those kids were all were not were not the football players. They weren't the you know math math geniuses. I mean, they were the kids that were listening to fucking Nirvana and Violent Femmes and Green Day and smoking pot in the you know track field during lunch. Sure, you know, and there wasn't very many of us. You know, there was only a few of us that had long hair and <laughs> wanted to play guitar. Right. I mean, it was, it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy path to step on, you know? And I feel, I feel like, you know, even before that, going, going back to the reason why I connected with music the way that I did was that I really, my, my whole childhood felt sort of a void, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of a disconnect with humanity and, when I discovered music, when I discovered, you know, an art form that was able to 
take me out of my own head and, and transform me to a place that I, that I felt something in my life. I immediately connected with it. And it was the same even before music. It was reading. You know, I used to read books as a kid. Sure. I'd go to the library and get lost in books. And, and I've always been sort of an escape artist. Right. Um, as, as a child, I was, I, I loved, you know, films and, and books and then music. And when music came in it was kind of just, you know, the beginning of my adolescence. And, uh, so when I discovered, I discovered music right about the same time I fell in with these, these kids that I, you know, connected with because we listened to the same music. And yeah. the first time I got drunk, I mean, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not going to make any bones about it. I'm a fucking serious drop dead alcoholic. Yeah. And dr- I mean, the first time I got loaded, you know, people, people drink and they shit their pants and they fucking piss on themselves and they, they think, oh my God, I never want to do that again. For me, I, I want, I, I told myself, okay, this is how I want to feel every second of every day. It was a spiritual revolution for me. Wow. And, uh, I mean that, you know, part of that is because of this void that I felt as a kid and, and this drink or this drug was able to, it was like a solution to my problem, you know? So it it was the solution. It was the solution that I had been searching for my whole life. And so, you know, it was easy for me to just fall in with those kind of characters, you know? And I was always a pretty adventurous kid. I never, never was like, well, you know, I don't want to do acid because I heard acid's bad or <laughs> I don't cocaine. That's bad. I mean, Kurt Cobain did heroin. Of course I was going to try heroin. I was just going to ask you that because <laughs> being from Seattle and you talk about these bands that you look up to and everybody know everybody knew not only was Kurt Cobain a heroin addict, but he wrote some of the greatest songs of all time when he was on heroin. So yeah. as an adventurous kid, it's almost like, you know, that almost just makes sense, which is kind of a fucked up thing to say, but, but I guess that's in your teenage brain, that was exactly what you were thinking. Is that accurate? Absolutely, man. I mean, all those, it, it was glamorized. Drugs were glamorized in the 90s. You know, and as a kid, I'm like a, a bored suburban teenager in the, in the fucking teenage wasteland. And there's nothing else to do except do whatever someone offers me, you know? Yeah. So in that regard, I was always, I was always pretty adventurous. I was always willing to take whatever substance someone had, you know? And as a result, my addiction progressed very, very rapidly. And by the time I was 15, I was banging heroin and speed and, you know, shooting cocaine and stealing cars and, doing all sorts of crime to support my, my habit. You know, by then I'd been kicked out of school. Um, you know, were you living at this time? I mean, in between, you know, different friends, houses, drug dealers, houses, living on the streets, you know, where, wherever the party was, where, wherever really. Wow. 
You know, I, and I, I, I did a lot of, I, I committed a lot of shameful acts, a lot of, I did a lot of crime to support my habit, really, as kind of any drug addict does. I mean, yeah. I never did anything violence. I was never, you know, I never beat people up or, you know, never raped anybody. It was like, I stole shit and, you know, broke into houses and sold fake weed to fucking kids at my junior high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn. Yeah. So, so this went on, I mean, this sounds like you say it, it happened very rapidly and obviously that kind of lifestyle isn't very sustainable, but you know, whenever you, you sometimes read about people being able to maintain an, an, a lifestyle like that, an addiction for years and years and years, how long did this go on for where you were, well, you know, I mean, it, it went through my adolescence, you know, and I, and I was such a fucking unlucky drug addict. I mean, I, I had a couple of friends that I was really, you know, I, I had a couple of really good friends that I always used with and we did crime together and we, we did everything together, but I was always the fucker that got caught by the cops or, you know, got arrested or caught red handed with a stolen car. I mean, I was the unluckiest fucking drug addict on planet earth. (laughs) (laughs) I ended up, I ended up in jail. I mean, more times than I can count. I mean, I have, I have five felonies on my record. I mean, not crazy ones, but, you know, like forgery and possession of stolen property and grand theft yeah. auto and all that kind of stuff. But every time, you know, you'd get, you get locked up, you know, you go to jail, you get locked up, you get these charges. And then the judge, you know, they want kids to get sober. You know, they don't want kids living on the street using drugs because, you know, it turns into kids going to prison for the rest of their lives. Sure. So they really tried to, you know, every time I got locked up, you know, it would be a suspended sentence pending, you know, completion of inpatient drug treatment. So I ended up in four different drug treatments, countless nights in jail. I mean, it was just nonsense all the time. And, and I could never, I could, I would always go to, go to jail or go to treatment and I would tell myself, oh, okay, God, fuck, I got to get out. I got to get out of this shit. I have to get sober got to do something else because I'm sick of this shit. And then I'd get out of jail and I'd immediately get loaded. I mean, it was, was, there was no thought process. There was no fight. You know, it was just immediate, immediately I'm, I'm getting fucked up. I mean, I was in Spokane one time at a drug treatment center and I, I, I broke out of the treatment center three o'clock in the afternoon and by nine, you know, I stole a car in Spokane and drove across the fucking mountains in Washington. And by nine o'clock at night, I was loaded at a friend's house. I mean, I just had no defense against right. the drink and the first drug. And once I start drinking or start using, I can't stop. Physically, it's like an impossibility for me. Wow. It's an allergic reaction. Wow. You know, so through this whole debacle... And through, through, you know, all, obviously I lived, you know, I ran around in the same circles in the same part of town in the suburbs, you know, Kent, Des Moines, Federal Way area of, you know, south of Seattle. And the cops, you know, because of the stuff we were doing, stealing cars and, and all that stuff, the cops had begun to build a case against me. And I can't think of anything worse. You know, being in jail is absolutely the worst 
thing on earth. Having your freedom taken away is, there's nothing, I would rather die than go to prison. Um, so through, through, this, through all this bullshit, you know, these cops started building a case against all the drug addicts and, you know, drug dealers and all the, the people who were committing all these felonies right. in my area. And I went to jail. The last time I went to jail, it was for, it was for a probation violation. I had, I had a meeting with my probation officer. You know, I knew I had a meeting with, with the guy and it was, you know, a month away. And I thought, okay, I got to quit doing drugs so I can pass the, you know, urine analysis test, you know, and every week I'd say, okay, stop in this week. And then the day came where I was supposed to go meet the guy and I, and I'm like smoking PCP and I go in and I, fucking piss in the cup like fuck it I don't care you know because I couldn't stop using drugs for something so important right and so they you know I had a court date you know a couple couple weeks later and I stayed up all night I stayed up all night before the court hearing and I was in this apartment in West Seattle smoking PCP with these crazy people and at nine o'clock when my court date was happening, I, I was like, okay, I have to go to the court date. And then 10 o'clock came and I was like, oh fuck, I, I gotta, I'm late. 11 o'clock came and I'm still sitting there getting loaded mm-hmm. and I, I just can't get out of the place that I'm at, you know? And I end up showing up in the afternoon and they put me in jail for being late for missing the court date. And while I was in jail, these detectives came. And these detectives were guys that I had been, they had arrested me in the past. And they sat, they sat down with this big binder. <laughs> back. So funny. They had this fucking binder and they said, well, we want you to take a look at this. And I started flipping, you know, thumbing through it. And there was pictures of, of cars that I stole and houses that I robbed and my friends that I was involved with and these drug dealers that I had been, you know, cooking meth with. And it, it was real fucking crazy. Like surveillance pictures right. of convenience stores. It was real, real fucking nuts. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, what are you, why are you guys wasting your time? Like, I'm a, I'm a drug addict. You know, I'm a, I'm a teenage drug addicts, there's murderers and rapists and right. you know, mafia and all, you know, it's like, what are you wasting your time on me? And they told me, they told me that it's much bigger than you. Things, you know, have escalated and we have the evidence to put you away for 10 years. So when you turn 18 in three months, we're going to nail your ass. Wow. <clears throat> and I, I was, I mean, if, I mean, I don't even know what I was. I was, I can't say that I was upset. I was scared. I was terrified. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I did something stupid. I tried to hang myself from the jail cell that night. Couldn't even do that. Such a fucking, you know, and at that point, you're just such a loser, you know. It's the worst when you're suicidal and you try and kill yourself and can't. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's heavy, man. It's so terrible. But, you know, what I did, what, what happened was I went the next day or a couple days later, I had a, I had a court hearing and there's this, there's this judge 
Her name is Laura Inveen. And she was the judge that provided, presided over pretty much all my cases as, a, as an adolescent. Yep. And she was always the one who's either putting me in treatment or sending me you know, to lock up or whatever the case. <clears throat> and I, I went into that courtroom that day fucking defeated, like so broken. I couldn't, I couldn't go on. And I begged her to put me in treatment again because all I wanted to do was, was get sober. I couldn't, I couldn't kill myself. I, I didn't definitely didn't want to go to jail and I had to do something. And I begged her and she told, she was, she told me, you know, why would I put you in treatment again? You broke out of the last, the last one that stole a car. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I just kind of threw myself on the mercy of the court and she, she eventually agreed to put me into another, yet another inpatient treatment center. And while I was there, I just, I just kind of gave up and decided to follow some directions. And they started taking us to AA meetings and I met some people who I really connected with, you know, that kind of shared the same similar story that I, and I was able to, to use the tools that Alcoholics Anonymous had to offer and was able to find a solution to my spiritual malady. That's good. That's great. And you haven't looked back. I mean, as long as I've known you, you've been sober. Yeah, man. It's been almost 17 years. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's terrific. And, and I, think that that's, I think that's good for people listening to this that struggle with that, to know that you know, you, you know, people say they hit rock bottom. Well, I don't even know what you hit, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that is, that is absolutely incredible. I remember somebody on Warped Tour telling me that you had the biggest rap sheet of all time, like when they were doing immigration for Canada or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard. I heard it was like, the, you know, your, your rap sheet was like 30 pages and the next guy, you know, ever had like, I think had like nine, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. So it's long, man. It's fucking long. <laughs> that is, wow. That is, that is insane. I mean, funny is what it is at this point. I, I, I mean, guess so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you must've broken. I mean, that must've been hard with your family, uh, life, you know? Um, and I think you have a pretty close relationship with your mother, or at least you did. Um, I think I met your mother before back yeah, in the day. Do, um, do, yeah. that must've been very hard to, you know, put your family through that. And then once it was over, have to make amends and, uh, and then be able to kind of have a normal family life again? Is that something that you were able to do? Mm, well, it took years to make amends. That's for sure. But I don't think the family never, never recovered. I mean, you know, my dad died a few years ago. Oh, sorry. To hear uh, that. But yeah, no, we never, re- never really recovered from that. I mean, once, once I got sober, I mean, it was kind of crazy. Once I got sober, my mom decided that she would, she had had enough with Seattle and decided that she was going to leave. She left my, she left my stepdad and started traveling, you know, with this company that she got a job with liquidating doors and Nebraska living in Nebraska for years and years. But, uh, only, only in the last few years has she moved back here to Washington and we've had a closer relationship. That's great. Like, 15 years after the fact, you know, 
Yeah, but I put my parents through the ringer, man. Oh, I bet. I mean, surprising that they <laughs> come over for a barbecue. You know? But I guess time does heal all wounds. <laughs> the moral of the story is that, I guess, somehow. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, okay. Well, um, so you're, you're almost 18 and you're going through treatment and you're becoming sober. And um, was this the point when you started discovering you know, that you wanted to be a musician, that you wanted to do this, this is seriously for you, when you started playing guitar, writing songs? Yeah, I mean, you know, I had always, I had always had a guitar. You know, I played guitar, I started playing guitar when I was real young, about 10 years old or so. Um, and, and I always had a guitar in some capacity in whatever place I was at or, you know, I always hung out with people who had instruments and, I kind of kept myself involved with people like that because I was, I was really interested in it. You know, I loved music. That was music and drugs were, were my salvation. Yeah. And so after I got sober, I was able to, you know, scrape together some money and buy an acoustic guitar. And I did start writing my own songs for the first time in my life. And I got together with this, with this kid, Brandon, who, who I knew in my adolescence, he went to my junior high and he was a great drummer. And we started a band called Youth at Risk. Uh huh. We played, we played a bunch of, you know, base, basement party shows and we wanted, we wanted to be propagandi so bad. <laughs> you know, we fucking loved no effects and bad religion. Yeah. We wanted to play fast, sing along punk rock songs. And, uh, it was, it was a good time. We had, we had a lot of, we had a lot, we played a lot of good shows. We had a lot of friends. We were connected into the Seattle scene. We did a couple of DIY tours. I mean, back in the day, I mean, this, this is crazy to think about, you know, as a 34 year old man, who has been playing music, you know, all of his adult life. When we, I, when, when I was in that band, it was, you know, it was bef- way before the internet. I mean, yeah. the internet the thing i had i think i had an email that i never checked you know so how did bands get shows it was there was no facebook there was no myspace there was no you know let me send an email to somebody and have them reply it was it the way that we booked our first tour was there was a ma- there used to be a magazine i don't know i think it's still around it's called maximum rock and roll of course i remember of course i think it's still around yeah i remember yeah. reading it all the time yeah when i was yeah so maximum rock and roll is like a punk zine yep. black and white rock and on the back cover of maximum rock and roll there was an order form for a book called book your own fucking life yeah and you send four bucks in the mail and they send you this this book and it's a resource guide and you know it has every state uh, in in america and it has you know venue listings and bands other bands yeah uh, Radio stations, yeah. flop houses, like punk punk rock people, you know, the community would submit, you know, hey, I've got a flop house. Just call this number and you can come stay here. So the first tours that we booked, I just was calling numbers out of here, out of this book. Like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, my name's Will. I'm playing this band. I'm from Seattle. We, we need a show on this day. And they're like, yeah, come on through. You know, and we played some crazy places, you know, in the, in Nevada and in Northern California, just really random small town, super DIY punk rock shit. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a very big lost art now. I mean, that mm-hmm. is does not just don't, does not exist. I mean, there was no GPS. You had to write down addresses. <laughs> you imagine today writing down an address in another state. And you know what, Will? Driving you, to it. Aiden was the first band I ever saw have a GPS. You, <laughs> it was you guys. I remember seeing it in your van, being like, "What's that thing?" Like, oh, dude, you got to check it out. It's this GPS. Yes. And I was like, what? How, how is this possible? And, I, and then I remember <laughs> saying to you, I said to you, that's, that's fucking cheating, man. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th- I was Yo. like, how much do you pay for that thing? You were like, it was like 800 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I can't believe you remember that. You yeah. know why we got that? Let me tell you why we got that. When we started touring, it was, you know, old school. It was Atlases, you know, when yeah. we did. The Road Atlas, man, Rand McNally or whatever. Yeah, those big fucking atlases. Mm-hmm. And we we did a tour. We did a, a UK tour in 2005, right before we toured with you, with Hawthorne Heights in Bayside. Yes. Right before that tour. Yep. And we had our van parked in a fucking storage space in Washington, D.C. And we were over in Europe. We came back from Europe, flew to D.C., Went and got our van out of the storage space, and then we had to drive from D.C. to Indianapolis, where that first show was. Okay, yep, yep. Yep, and Jake Davison drove 200 miles in the wrong direction. Oh, jeez. And we had to be there the next day. I mean, we flew in in the afternoon, started driving. We had to be in Indianapolis the next you know, morning for, for load-in. And he drove us 200 miles in the fucking wrong direction. Oh, my God. Down to Richmond. <laughs> and we were, oh, we were so tired from flying all the way. We had, you know, jet lag. We were so fucking tired. He drove us in the wrong direction, and I was, we, everyone was so pissed. I got in the driver's seat, started driving the right direction. We made it to Indianapolis, and that is when we bought the fucking GPS. I was like, <laughs> fuck this shit. Fuck this. And now, you know, GPS, you can go buy one, the same GPS for, what is it, a hundred bucks now? Yeah, maybe not even. Yeah. Yeah. They're all on our phones now. Oh, yeah. No, nobody even has them anymore because they're on the phones. You don't even need one. It's crazy, man. I know. Mm-hmm. But but it's you bring up the whole internet thing, you know, and, and the lack of internet when we started out playing music. And it, it, is kind, it is kind of mind-blowing just now how much bands rely on it, you know? Like, I can't remember the last time I would... Like, and there's no way a band would start out today and pick up the phone and call like a local venue and be like, "Hey, uh, I got this band. Um, can we like play this Saturday?" Like, the, <laughs> they would laugh their ass off at you. But that's what we did. You know, yeah. You just had to that's call exactly around and or go to, or then the guy would say, "Yeah, man, come down and uh, and drop off a demo." You know, mm-hmm. and that's like something out of the movies now. Like that doesn't even seem real. Yeah, drop a demo off. Yep. Remember going to fucking other shows and, and giving out CDs or giving CDs to other bands? Yeah. Well, that was that was the plan, like, like what we used to do. It's probably the same for you guys. Like, So you guys are a Seattle band. Well, you know, we were a Toronto, like a suburban Toronto band. Well, we would hit up all the other bands in, like, Ontario that could play decent shows that had, like, a decent following. And we'd just say, hey, we'll come play your show this weekend. Next weekend, you can come down to Toronto area. And we would just start trading. And the idea yeah. was just to build this radius, you know, of, of your band, you know, where it's like, okay, Seattle, 
you know, Aiden or whoever, you know, was at that time youth, um, what'd you say it was? Youth? Youth at risk. Youth at risk. Yeah, you know, youth at risk. Okay, they got a pretty good following in Seattle. Then they have a pretty good following in Yakima or Spokane or, you know, whatever those, like, cities around you are. And that's that's how we did it. Yep. Yeah. It's a different world. It's a different world. It's a different world. It was and, a, but, the, but you know what, man? It I was love, a community. It, it was a community. And what I loved about those days is that you used to hear a band, and you could tell by how they sounded where they were from. And I'm not just talking like like East Coast oh, or West yeah. Coast. Like you could tell like what a band from Long Island, New York sounded like, you know? Absolutely. Or 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 there was that like Florida metalcore sound, you know? Like that was that was a thing. And yep. because those those bands all did it the same way where they were all influencing each other, you know, in the same uh the same scene. And that's I think for me what I miss the most about that was how everyone every scene had their own identity and their own sound yeah well the internet's changed that all of course yeah completely it's, it's gone it's it's not coming back yeah it's really strange you know you know what i find most strange about music today is like imagine imagine that if you imagine if we were shane and william and it was 19 19- 85. Yeah. And we were living in a, living in LA, you know, and we, and we were like, okay, let's start a band. Okay. And you showed up to practice with bell bottoms and <laughs> on air. And I showed up to band practice with shoulder pads and fuck seagulls hair. I'd be like, what are you doing, man? It's 1985. You can't show up looking like it's 1975. <laughs> you know what I mean? You you wouldn't be able to be in a band. And it's the same. In the 90s, there was no 80s bands in the 90s. It was grunge. Yeah. But now in 2016, you could start a band that's exactly the same as a band from 2005. That's and true. No, and everybody's like, yeah, this band's tight. It's so weird. It is weird. Well, there's also just the whole, like, you could, I mean, if you started a new band, right? You know, if you guys showed up looking like the Misfits in, you know, in 1980, that would be cool. Yeah. If you guys showed up looking like Led Zeppelin in 1971, that would be cool, too. You know, know. it, it kind of just like, I guess now it doesn't really matter anymore, you know? Um, I guess... But I mean, I guess there's certain things you couldn't show up. Like you couldn't show up looking like Striper. Maybe you could. I don't know. Maybe you could. You definitely could. There's a, what's that band? <laughs> Pink Panther. Panther. Steel Panther. Oh right, yeah. Well, they're a bit of a. <laughs> I love Steel Panther, but they're uh, yeah. I want to have exactly. that guy on you my show. You love Steel Panther, and it's 2016. Yeah. Like if Steel Panther was trying to be Steel Panther in in, in 1996. People would be like, no, man, where's your long hair? Where's your fucking flannel? Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Shit's dead. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, Steel Panther's a bit of a comedy act, so maybe it's not the best example, but I totally understand what you're saying. It's it just, is just, It is really weird now how especially it's, band, it's all come. Especially bands on, like, the Warp Tour alternative press scene. You know, there's bands that are, there's bands that are putting out records now that, that sound exactly... Like, if you took that record and put it out in 2005, 
it would be exact. It would be the, they'd have the same audience. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I think. But I, I, I honestly, I think that's just the way that music can tend to go. Like you know, the bands that are the kids that are making music now were influenced by those bands in 2005. You know, your band and my band, for example, and so that's what they're coming up with in terms of a sound. And obviously, there's been other influences. So you know, some of them are more you know quote-unquote modern or whatever um but yeah that's that's just the way i think it works and i think the same way that you could look at some of the aiden songs that you guys put out in 2006 uh and be like those were just 1996 punk rock songs <laughs> is, i mean am, am i really is it really not that accurate like your record knives that came out what oh nine there yeah. were definitely songs on that record that were straight up like epitaph punk songs. Yeah, dude. And that was what you grew up loving. And it just, you know, it's funny how these eras, they, they shift, but not really. You know, the ideology in a lot of ways is the same. Yeah. It's strange. It is. Music is strange. It's a strange world we live in. It is weird, man. Hey, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And we'll be right back with Will Francis. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it complicated and then try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That's why you need to check out SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. And as all the listeners of this show know, I'm a huge sports fan, especially this time of year with the Blue Jays. You know, the Blue Jays had such a great run last year. And SeatGeek is always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game or a concert I have the SeatGeek app right on my phone, and just the other day I needed to get some last-minute Blue Jays tickets. And what makes SeatGeek better than all the other websites is it takes all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. What it does is it pulls all the tickets available on every other site into one place, so you never miss a deal. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value, so you can immediately find the best deals, the best underpriced seats. And what else I like about it is they have super detailed maps of all the venues, so you can really see the view from your seat, exactly what you're going to see when you get to the concert or you get to the game. But my favorite part is that SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Like StubHub, you never really know at the end what the full ticket price is going to be, but SeatGeek, they show you the full ticket price right from start to finish, and there's never any surprises or huge fees at checkout. Now, the listeners of my show get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and enter the promo code SHANE20. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made the first ticket purchase. Once again, I know you guys are going to concerts, I know you guys are going to games, so please check it out. It's a free 20 bucks. Download the free SeatGeek app, settings tab, promo code, Shane20. Boom, right there. SeatGeek will send you $20 right after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Shane20 today. I like the way we're telling this story in uh, kind of in chronological order. And then we have these, uh, these little uh, off on our tangents we're doing, which is cool. But I, I want to go back a little bit. So you started playing guitar with... Um, with your band Youth at Risk, and then yep. somehow that fell apart and Aiden was formed. Yeah. And what a lot of people don't know about Aiden is that Aiden was basically you. Um, you wrote everything, you pretty much recorded everything um, on those records, and that was really your project. Well, um, 
That's not entirely true. Oh, okay, okay. Like, I got together... I After I left Youth at Risk, you know, after that whole thing fell apart, I was kind of ostracized from the Seattle scene, you know, because of some situations that I don't really want to get in, get into because it's just dumb. Okay. Uh, basically, I was like, fuck all these pretentious dickheads. They're never going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and all I wanted to do was be in a band. Like, Youth at Risk was weird. We would, we would write music, you know, we would record a little record or an EP or something, and then two months later, the guys would be so bored of playing the songs, they yeah. would never want to play them live. And I would tell them, we got to play the songs that we have recorded. We can't just play new songs every night. Sure. You know, so we didn't really understand how to build a, a following with a band. You know, that, so that whole thing fell apart. And when I met, when I met the guys from Aiden, it was Jake and Angel and Jake. The yep. two Jake and Angel. And they were a three-piece band. Or actually, no, there was this, they had a singer at the time, Scott, because Scott was the guy who introduced me. He's like, oh, you, your band broke up. We need a bass player. Come down and, you know, practice with us. And they were, they wanted to be, I mean, they were playing music. It was like Blink-182 meets Hope Conspiracy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was pop punk with screaming vocals. It was real weird. Okay. And they were re really young. Angel and Jake were 15 or they were still in high school. Yeah. And, and I thought, okay, well, you know, these guys have a place to practice. This is cool. Let's start writing some songs. And I started showing them songs that I had written for Youth at Risk, but the band, you know, Youth at Risk didn't want to play them or whatever it was. And I, and I started showing them these songs, you know, 15 and the Dawn Breaking Tide and all these songs that made up our first record, Our Gang's Dark Oath. Yeah. And, and it was because of those, it was because of their willingness to, to try anything that I was, that I threw at them, you know, hey, play this. And they'd be like, okay. You know, Jake, Jake Davison is, is still the greatest drummer on the face of the earth. I mean, he could play anything and he's so, he was so perfect playing drums. I mean, he never fucked up. It was, he was an amazing drummer. I yeah. mean, and he just, you know, do this and he would just rock it out. And and so it was really that first record was was inspired by a those guys having the willingness to to play the songs that I was writing cool. and, and not being fucking jaded assholes, you know, like yeah. all of the Seattle musicians that I was involved with. They were just everyone in Seattle just wanted to be cool and they just wanted to fucking mm -hmm. you know fuck fuck chicks and. You know, whatever the whatever the fuck they wanted to be, cool guys. You know, and I never wanted to be cool guy. I just wanted to tour and make records and make music that people cared about. I don't I don't care if the stranger thinks I'm a cool guy. <laughs> you know, I want to travel the world. I don't give a fuck about your hip jeans and your fucking foo foo drink at the cha cha. Like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> 
Like, I want to go to England. I want to go to Japan. Right. I want to play music for people that care about music. Because people in Seattle, especially back then, didn't. Although there was a big music scene, everyone didn't give a fuck about music. They they gave a fuck about being seen. Yeah, you know, they gave a fuck about being the cool guy at the show that could hit people in the face the hardest. The hardcore scene in particular, man, was real, was real violent and misogynistic and, and really a, a big letdown. Yeah, that's not cool at all. You know, the guys, the guys that claim straight edge and although there are a couple of those guys that, you know, live that life because that's what they wanted to do. But most of them just, just wanted to be cool in everyone's eyes. Cool and guys, most yeah fucking dickheads and disgusting like the guy from fucking champion i don't know if you heard about that no i remember that band but yeah man he's all these allegations are coming out now about how he's been fucking 15 year old chicks for the last 10 years he mm, gets him naked Jesus. and yeah like fuck fuck that guy yeah that's uh, fuck wow. that rape. but i'm just you know that's like one one example I mean, I, I was never interested. I was never interested in that, in that scene. You know, and although I grew up in that scene and I, I, had, I had a lot of friends in that scene, I turned my back on it because I wanted to pursue something meaningful. Well, that's one thing that always struck me about you guys, um, you know, the Jakes and Angel and yourself, is that you were just nice guys. And, you know, you always had this hard, very hard edge about you. You know, if you were... If you walked in on a show and Aiden was playing, you know, you guys are like, you guys, look, you're like crazy up there. You're like jumping around and you're throwing the mic around and, you know, Jake Davidson's like licking the drumstick or, you know, like you guys have this like persona on stage, but off stage, everybody that toured with you and everybody that knew you guys were like, they're some of the nicest, sweetest guys ever. Well, that's because we all, you know, Throughout our entire career, especially in the beginning, everyone just thought we were fucking faggots. You know, we were called faggots on a daily basis because we wore makeup, you know. <laughs> well, but that's the thing, though. Also, you're, you're talking a little bit about how you're coming from the scene where you didn't want to be like the cool guy and stuff. And you wanted to play, you know, meaningful music for and stuff and stuff. But then you did have an image, you know, like there was an image to Aiden that was important to you guys. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, but that, it, it was just the aesthetic. This was just what we wanted to, to represent, you know, kids, we were fucking into, you know, Dracula and the crow and, right. and Edgar Allan Poe, you know, I'm, I'm like a goth kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love the misfits, man. The misfits are my sure. favorite on planet earth. I want to be fucking Glenn Danzig all the time. <laughs> I heard he's an asshole, though. I don't know. I'm sh I'm sure, but you know <laughs> the reason why Aiden was was such was such nice guys is you know we didn't want to be associated with the dickheads from Seattle, and because since everyone assumed we were assholes, because I guess people that put on eyeliner are assholes, <laughs> we wanted we wanted to prove them wrong, you know, yeah. and for punk rock kids. With, 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 without, you know, a, a, you know, someone with a bunch of money backing our band, we were just grateful for every opportunity that we got signing to victory, you know, touring, touring 
in general, just being on a fucking tour that you didn't have to book out of book your own fucking life where yeah. you show up and there was a thousand people there. I mean, that was, that was one of the greatest experiences we, we had at that point in our lives. I mean, that, that was it. We had arrived. We were, we were on stage playing in front of an audience. There was people there. It wasn't some DIY VFW hall or some kid's basement in Yakima or some <laughs> shit hole in Richmond, you know? Sure. It was like in Chicago or it was in Los Angeles. Right. It wasn't in Whittier or <laughs> whatever the fucking shit towns we used to go to. So yeah, we, wanted, wild. We, wanted, we wanted to be nice guys. We wanted people to like us despite what they – despite the preconceived notions they right, may have. Sure. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that that, like, you know, in those days when somebody would talk shit on you guys and, oh, yeah, be, yeah. and I would be like, do you ever met them? Like the amount of conversations I had with the, with people being like, they're a great band. They're great guys. Have you seen them play live? Cause they're one of the best live bands out there right now. And sure enough, once people got to know you and saw you live and everything, uh, you know, it, they they said you were right, you know, and uh, I mean, I, I always was a champion of you guys. Um, not the guy from Champion, fuck that guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I was I did champion your band. I mean, I remember the first time I met you, we met at um, Graceland. What is it called now? El Corazon, yeah, very uh, legendary Seattle venue. And you came out to our show. We were playing with Strike Anywhere, and That's you big. let us stay at your house, your apartment. Um, my n- nice apartment. Uh, it was a nice apartment. <laughs> and, uh, and we, I remember you being so soft spoken too. You were, you were like a very well behaved, soft spoken, like almost shy guy. And yeah, and you had us over. And I remember we went to like the mall next day and we went to Olive Garden or something. And then you were like, Hey, I've, uh, I got this band. And we were like, okay, yeah, let's check it out. And I remember you playing it for me. It was the record. I think our, uh, our gang's dark oath. And, yeah. um, you played me the record and I was like, dude, this is, this is like really good, you know? Cause you, you gotta remember like at that point I heard every kid in every town's shitty demo, yeah, you know? And I remember telling you this and you, you almost say to me like, really? Like, are you just like, almost like you're looking at me like, are you just bullshitting me? Like you just telling me what I want to hear. And I was like, no. And then I don't know what it was like how it all panned out. But three, four months later, you guys were on victory. Yeah, man. I think I mean, it was about that, maybe six months, something like that. And I don't know whether to um, to say you're welcome or or I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, you don't have to. You know, you're welcome. It will suffice. <laughs> you know, because at, had had I not signed a victory, I wouldn't have this fucking gorgeous studio that I'm sitting in now. I wouldn't have the career that I have. Yeah. If I had not signed to victory. You know, and, and despite all of Victory's misgivings and our fights and, and all that shit, I mean, in the beginning, Tony was a champion of, of Aiden and Silverstein yes. and Bayside yes, and Hawthorne, taking back Sunday and Thursday. And he fucking believed in us. He believed in, in shitty punk rock kids who put on fucking smudgy eyeliner who were not attractive and gave us an opportunity and poured money into our career. And was able to sell a lot of our records. I mean, it's crazy. So I have to, I have to say that just, you know, 
aside from all the bullshit that has gone down between us and victory. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful for that opportunity, you know? You still and talk it, to Tony? Yeah, yeah. I just, I just bought the rights back to my first two albums, the first two William Control albums. Wow. Wow, yes. that's great. Yeah, he's, you know, he's come out to the shows. I had a screaming match with him a couple years ago at, at one of our shows. He came wow. out where we were playing the Bottom Lounge. And he came into the backstage and we had a fucking screaming match. I mean, the motherfucker's still upset about Hawthorne Heights suing him. I mean, I'm <laughs> Ten years yelling ago. at him. I'm like, bro, it's 2015. Let it go. It's over. Who cares? Fuck Hawthorne Heights. Oh my god! It is what it is, man. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, no, he came out to our um, discovering the waterfront ten year anniversary. He came cool. out to our show. I was also at the bottom, bottom lounge, and uh, we had a great time. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he you know he got came he party he partied like Tony does, but it was uh yeah it was it was awesome. Um, well, that's crazy, man. No, but what like I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. We, we've talked a lot about the past. Um, you know. You just did the Aiden. Oh, we'll talk about the Aiden thing too while we're, while, uh, we're on the subject. Doing the anniversary tour, how was that? Um, how was recording new Aiden songs? And do you finally feel like you've kind of put that chapter behind you? Like, you know, to, to use the goth term, uh, nail in the coffin, just to be a little, uh, <laughs> to be a little gothy for you. Absolutely. I do, man. I feel. I feel accomplished. I feel like I did everything that I wanted to do with that band and, and much, much more, you know, and and I'll tell you the reason why we did, why I recorded a last Aiden album was, you know, the way, the way that the whole thing ended with victory and with, you know, some kind of hate and those last couple albums disguises and some kind of hate. I mean, it was, it was at the time, you know, we, we had fired our manager and we were with this new management company that was feeding us all these lies. And they're like, Oh, we're going to get you out of the contract. You'll never record another record for victory again. And, you know, after a couple of years of that bullshit, I, I asked this, the lawyer straight up and he's like, well, you know, you should probably just finish the contract. And I was like, what are you fucking wasting my time. Right. You know, so we finished, we, we did the albums. Everything was just, Everything at Victory is kind of falling apart. You know, there was no relationship there at all. We we were supposed there to weren't any of the same employees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were supposed to do a tour, and the tour got canceled. You know, and at that point, I had just had a I just had a kid. I was fucking broke. I mean, I needed to 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 work. I mean, I needed to either go get a job at McDonald's or I needed to pursue William Control on my own and try right. and make money for the mortgage because I was fucking underwater. And so I kind of just started doing William Control f- full time and and people were begging me for another Aiden album. They wanted they wanted to see us on tour and it took a few years for me to f- to get to a place financially where where I could make it make a new album right. on my own and do a tour on my own without without the backing of of a, a label. And so it was, it was a good way. It was, it was good for us to take, uh, a few years off, you know, and really write a, really write a great final album. 
And so I, I, I wrote, I wrote this fucking album and people, you know, people were for years, every album we put out isn't as good as nightmare anatomy, obviously, because that's the album they got into. So I wanted to make an album that was like nightmare anatomy. It was fast and had, you know, riffs and it was sing along and yeah. fun. And I feel, I feel like I accomplished that. And we did that tour and it was great to go out and sing those songs one last time despite how difficult it was cuz those songs were written when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> and they're sung just so all at the top of my range and it's just really I so surprised at how I was able to do that for so long. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you did sing yeah cuz you, you do have like in William Control it's much more of a lower tone of voice that you're using oh like, yeah i man. guess over time you know you almost if you're not singing those aiden songs all the time you sort of start to eh, not lose it but you're you're get a little out of shape on that register of your voice yeah was I mean, the tour just, hard I'm, was the tour hard to go out and do that know. would you did you uh I, I imagine you didn't book a lot of days off was that a struggle for you vocally no no because you know i got to work before the tour and yeah condition voice and you know I mean, I know how to I know how to hit those notes. There you go. <clears throat> but it, I mean, it wasn't the you know it wasn't easy. You know, with William Control, I'd smoke a thousand cigarettes and go on stage, no vocal warm ups, and I would just rock that shit. <laughs> that a boy. I can't I can't smoke as many cigarettes. I gotta do vocal warm ups every night. I mean, <laughs> I gotta make sure I'm running every morning to keep the. It's it's it was hard. <laughs> Make sure I'm running every morning. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah. But uh right on, man. So okay, so you got a new William Control record coming out uh this year, I presume? Yeah. Well I'm gonna do it a little differently, actually, on this go around. I'm not actually going to put out a full full album. I feel I feel like Times are, times have changed, right? Yeah, things are so much different. You put you put an album out and you do press, and it's in someone's you know Instagram feed and disappears five minutes later. Yeah, you know. So blow, I think blowing the proverbial wad all at once is sort of a mistake these days. That sounds like something Tony would say. <laughs> by the way, but. Uh, so I'm, yeah, no, I'm no. a little differently, man. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna put out, you know, I'll probably release a single, you know, in August, and then an EP in September, and do a video, and then, you know, I'll release some B sides and maybe remixes over the next, you know, few weeks after that. I'm gonna release another EP probably in November, and I'm just gonna keep releasing stuff throughout the winter and into the spring. Yeah. Rather than putting everything out all at once, here you go. That's it. Uh, yeah, job. and then at the end of the at the end of it, you could you know you could put the stuff together in an album and uh, you know make vinyl and all that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's that's the thing though. I mean, you must like now that you're you know I, I'm sure people people probably don't know this. I don't know if people even care anymore. But you know, you're not on a label, uh, as you just said. You bought back you know rights to some of your old music, and you have kind of from what. I've described you have almost your own your own complex there where you have you where you keep your merch that you ship out yourself um, where you have a studio where you work on your music um, and, and you, you're basically you're your own label you're your own everything 
I and am. um that's rare these days for it to be completely DIY especially somebody that's you know done it for so long um how has that changed your mindset on on music and do you feel like do you feel like you got ripped off all those years before because you didn't understand yes. it fuck yes are you kidding me you know how much money you and I have been ripped off collectively a lot. Together as a whole, it's been millions of dollars we've been ripped off, Shane. Yeah. I, I know how much it fucking costs to make an album. I know how much it costs to make a t-shirt. I know how much it costs to, to do print ads and internet ads. I know how much it costs, man. We've been fucking jacked. Bands are getting jacked. And I keep telling people, you know, I keep telling my friends in other bands, you have to, in, in order to... To be a band in 2016, to be a band like us, you know, if you're not Britney Spears or Justin Bieber or Skrillex or fucking Drake, I mean, you have to be creative about how you make a living. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I keep telling these bands, you know, you're spending too much on this. You're getting ripped off on this. Every fucking band that I talk to that's on a label is saying, oh, fuck, I'm broke. You know, the guitar player Nikki Misery from New Year's Day was like, oh, well, I got to go back to my server job at the Crab Shack. And I'm thinking, you're in New Year's Day. Why don't you have a fuckload of money? Oh, that's right, because everyone that's working for you is fucking ripping you off. And it happens. It happens all the time. Yeah, bands have no idea where their money's going. Yeah, they have no idea, which is fucking stupid. You guys, you're stupid. Stop being stupid. <laughs> oh man! All those people, all the guys in bands that are listening to this right now, stop. You're getting jacked. Well, there's I mean- money to be made from your art, from your intellectual property, and you're getting ripped off at every fucking corner. The guys that make your merch, the guys that set up your VIPs, the guys that manage your band. Everyone is jacking you. Everyone is fucking got their hand in your pocket. Why? And why can't artists do things for themselves? Why? Because they're fucking terrified. They think they need these other people. That's That's the truth. Bands think that they need a merch company and they need a manager and they need, you know, someone to set up their VIP motherfucker. It's so easy. It's so fucking easy. Do it yourself. I I agree with you, man. I I think that that's that you just really jumping in with both feet into that is, is awesome. And it served you so well. And I think that that's, you know, it would serve every band. It would serve every band. Everyone's like, oh, well, I got to get a job when I come home for tour. Motherfucker, make your band your job. Make the band your job. I took a loan out for $10,000. I bought some screen printing equipment. I rented a shitty warehouse in a shitty part of town. I watched some YouTube videos. I learned how to make (laughs) t-shirts. I started selling the t-shirts. I hired some employees. And this year, I bought a fucking commercial property. I bought the motherfucker. And people are like, oh, well, I just don't think, uh, I don't think we could do that. It's like, yeah, you can. You just have to not be an idiot. You know, you have five people, you have four people in your band that if they're not on tour, what are they doing? Give them a job. 
Make some t-shirts. You know what I mean? Absolutely, man. No, absolutely. every band, every band on earth should have a, a merch company. Every band, every band working should have their own merch company with their own merch store and their own wholesale distributor where they get t-shirts. I get t-shirts for a dollar 75. You know, I have to pay my employees like it's way cheaper than spending, you know, the five to $10 you're spending from your merch company. Yeah. When you could just be putting that into equity of a building or investing it in your own products. You know, I have control merch where I do, you know, William control merch. I did all the Aiden merch. I do like parody shirts with misfits and, you know, Morrissey, you know, there's like, and it's endless possibilities. I've done merch for, you know, friends of mine who just want a small run of t-shirts and the, the beauty about having my own empire is that I'm not bound to any restrictions or anybody's time schedule. I, I do whatever the fuck I want. It's awesome. And can do that. Silverstein could have their own merch company. Yeah, you know, we, we, well, we could, but merch. we're we signed a merch deal, so we can't. But that's, I mean, that's what you're talking about. You know, that's what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So next time when you get out of your merch deal, set up your own merch company. Take some of that money you got from your merch deal. Open up a screen print shop. Learn how to print T-shirts, and by the time you're done with your merch deal, watch how much money you make. Because I guarantee <laughs> yeah. you, it, it would be fucking five times the amount that they gave you for the the advance. I do not dispute that, man. That's, I mean, that's such a rad thing, though. For you, like, the, you telling us the story of where you started and where you are now is amazing. And to see you continually doing, not only just doing music, playing music, but doing it your own fucking way is inspiring, and it's an inspiring story. Well, let me tell you that I'm not special. This hasn't happened to me because, you know, the the fictitious God above us has bestowed some sort of power upon me. I'm not unique. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't write hit songs. You know, I have a moderate audience who is really into what I do and yes, they support me and I'm super grateful for that, but I'm not, I'm not any different than any other kid sitting in a basement in America or Anywhere in the world who just has a dream of playing music, all the 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 only difference is that, is that I'm fearless in my endeavors. Yeah. Well, and you fuck, say you've always fuck. been a person looking for adventure, and you've never shied away from adventure. So that's part of your personality. That's right. Yeah. But anybody can do this. You know, if you're if you're in a band and you're broke, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. I agree. I agree 100%. I want to talk about your endeavor you're embarking on now, getting into some film stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of how this got set up. And, you know, through your whatever publicist you had hired, uh, that mm-hmm. you probably hired yourself. And um, that, what is going on with that? Can you explain to me? Because I'm a little foggy on the details and I want everyone to know about this uh, film stuff you're getting into. All right. Well, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Revelator, and it's it was the first novella in a in a series in a three book series. Yeah. And 
without going without going into you know exactly what it's about um basically I, I wrote this book i wrote the sequel i just finished with the third one that's coming out probably later this summer um but a mutual friend uh i i think you probably know him kyle core from fearless uh yeah yes i do yeah you know kyle so kyle hit me up last year and he was he was all hey you know i have this friend Jacob, who works for Marvel Studios, and he's interested in doing a project with you. Hit him up. Here's his number. And so I called him, and we set up a meeting down in Los Angeles, and I went and met with this guy. I well, he's younger than me, so he's a kid. Uh, but he'd been he'd been working at he'd been working at Marvel Studios for the last six years. You know, worked on Captain America and Thor and all, you know, Avengers and all that stuff. Yeah. And he was in doing, doing a film project based on William Control. And I, I said, well, I, have you read Revelator? Have you read this book that I wrote? And he, and he said, no, I haven't even heard of it. And so I gave him the book and within a couple of weeks, he wrote a fucking screenplay. Jeez. He was like, let's, let's make this movie. <laughs> and I was... I was all, wow, fuck, yeah, let's make it. And we got involved with this media company, Dark City Media Group, who's been actively trying to find funding for the film. You know, and at this point, we're, we're, we're in pre-production. We're, we're in casting right now. We've, we've done a lot of readings for the main character, uh, the main, main character, and we've sent out an offer for another one of the other main character. And... Um, you know, we have like locations set up and so it's kind of the, you know, the pre-production process. So I guess I'm going to make a movie. Cool. That's wow. That's, that's cool and unexpected. Um, yeah. Do you know anything about making a movie really? Not really. No, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I certainly don't. So I mean, I'll leave, I'll leave that to the filmmakers. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make the music for the movie. Cool. So that's cool. awesome. Do you have any idea like a, uh, the time frame on that or anything? Well, uh, shoot, principal photography is supposed to be like late August, September. Yep. And I think it's going to be a five, five week shoot, five or six week shoot, I think. And then hope, you know, hopefully have it edited in time for, for, for cans next year and maybe release it in the fall. It's fantastic. That's really, really cool, man. We'll see what happens. I mean, you know, this is the entertainment industry. It's not, it's, it's, mu- it's very much, it's very similar to the music industry. And it's a lot of people who are interested in making art and, it, and a lot of things have to fall in place for something like this to get made. And so, you know, it could, it could happen. It could be the biggest movie ever. It, you know, it could fizzle out and never come to fruition. Who knows? Right. But. I'm not really that concerned, you know. No. I'm making a record, still doing what I do, and if it happens, awesome. That's great. Any plans to go back on, out on the road anytime soon? Uh, yeah, I've got. Yeah, I'm setting up some stuff for the fall. Cool. Um, we'll see what happens. Fantastic, man. Well, oh, well, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, it's great talking to you. Great catching up. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add or talk about or anything before uh, before I let you go? No, man. That's pretty pretty much all i got <laughs> we covered it yep nice well well dude thank you and it's so great great again to talk to you yeah man thanks a lot for doing it let me know when it comes up i'll blast it out awesome man hey thank you all right talk all to right. you later yeah
Take care, Will. Okay. Bye. See ya. So there it is, my talk with my very good friend, Will. Some incredible stories, some crazy stories, and it was so good to have him and for him to really express himself and make all of us privy to that information about his growing up. And especially now, I mean, he's really telling us some secrets about the music industry. And if you're in a band, I hope you're taking notes. Seriously. Next week, as always, we'll be back with a brand new episode on Monday. Please make sure you're subscribed. It's really easy. You just go onto your podcast app. If you like the show, write a review on iTunes. This stuff all really helps us out. Again, thank you so much for listening to this. As always, I'll leave you with a song. It's hard for me to pick an Aiden song because I love the band so much. They have so many great songs. But I'm going to go with probably their biggest hit. Here's the classic, Die Romantic by Aiden on Lead Singer Syndrome. Good night.